welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in these special bonus episodes, we are talking about the His Dark Materials TV show on BBC and HBO. Beware, these episodes are not spoiler free and may contain spoilers for the original HDM trilogy. So if you haven't read them all, pop back when you're all caught up. This week, we are discussing season two, episode four, Tower of the Angels. Hello. Hello. How are you? Oh my god, I'm really tired, but I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Did I mention that I'm good? <laughs> She's good. Don't worry. She's good. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. Not much to report, really. Just that I've got my bag of Percy pigs here, obviously. Here they yeah. are. You can hear them rustling, everybody. <laughs> we got very excited about Percy pigs because this is the episode where Andrew Scott and Lynn Manuel Miranda, Lee Scorsby and Drippery, this is where they meet for the first time. In the Comic-Con panel that they did, they said that they ate Percy Pigs in the balloon, like we said last week. So we got our Percy Pigs and we ate them whilst we watched and it was fun. Yes, yes. And I got extra packets to stash for next week, just in case there's even more Lee Scoresby droppery scenes. <laughs> I feel like they'll be in the balloon a lot more next week because it ended on them in the balloon, right? Every time it like finishes a scene with them in the balloon, you've got to eat Percy Pigs until you see them in the balloon again, because that's like between takes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See how many Percy Pigs you can eat, but don't blame us if you chirk <laughs> or you know mix it up a bit get a Colin the Caterpillar they're bloody great too the fizzy ones oh. are the Colin the Caterpillars the chocolate ones oh she's showing me oh you know I've got some with me they're these ones oh. they're like gummy worms gummy worms but what's the chocolate one like the cake the birthday cake one are they Colin the Caterpillars I think he's a Colin too yeah I think they're all Colin we're all Colin here different species <laughs> Yeah, because I went on an absolute mission to find my nearest m to get these bloody Percy's. I'm very proud of myself. I needed a walk. It was fine. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm here. I'm just going to get as many fancy snacks as I can while I'm here. So I also got some like little pineapple tarts, Ooh. which I didn't know was like a thing. I was like, oh, that sounds fancy. Apparently they're really big in Scotland. Scottish people, tell me about why you like pineapple tarts so much. And... Also just got like dark chocolate fancy Jaffa cakes. They're like rectangular. Oh, they're really good though. And then some really nice like dark chocolate ginger biscuits. It just basically like... You fucking cleaned them out. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, well, if I'm trekking all the way here, I will get sufficient snacks to last me for many a week. Guess how many snacks are left? <laughs> oh my God, did you eat them all? No, not all of them, but like the stash is significantly depleted. This is right. This is why... I don't ever have snacks in my house because I know that that's the thing. Uh, this makes me sound really boring in my house, so I'm not very inviting. But if people are coming over, I buy snacks. But like, I would not just have like biscuits sat in the cupboard because number one, because I would eat those biscuits in two seconds flat, and number two, I don't want the temptation of having them in the flat anyway. So I just, I just don't bother unless I've got people coming over. You now you see, my problem is if there's no physical snacks in the house. I will make an excuse to just bake something. And then once something's been baked, it has a time limit on it because baked things only last a certain amount of time. <laughs> then everyone has to eat the baked things within the next few days. And then that's how you eat an entire massive chocolate fudge cake in two days flat. <laughs> the, yeah. And in fairness, I, I don't really have that the self-restraint that I just painted a picture of myself then because if I don't have snacks and I want them, I just go and get them because it's like a Tesco literally five seconds around the corner from my flat. So it's like I tried to deter myself by not having them in 
And it's only very rarely that I can't be bothered to get up and go to the shop, but most of the time I'll just get up and go to the shop and get snacks anyway. Join the snack brigade. Everybody loves a snack. Oh, they're so great. Right, okay. <laughs> now we know what we've been snacking on. It's Percy Pigs. They're great. Shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. So, the opening. Very Lord, Lord of, of the Rings. Rings. <laughs> yeah. I have not seen Lord of the Rings for many a year. Uh, and I've only seen it maybe once or twice in my lifetime. So I was very surprised that I even remembered that it, like, it gave me that Lord of the Rings vibe, because it's not, it's not one of my favourite films, it's not one of my favourite franchises. I didn't know that I connected with it that much to be like, that's Lord of the Rings. But as soon as it came on, I was like, uh, when, with the knife, when they were like, forging, forging it. it. And, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. Lord. and the voiceover as well. Very Lord of the Rings. The forging it, the voiceover, the like, talking about different groups of people affected by the thing and then even some of the illustrations in the books that were shown because there was a lovely little illustration that was like going around in a ring and there was script writing that it said something on the bottom that I didn't catch and then like spectres of indifference around the side it could be the band logo for our (laughs) spectres of indifference t-shirt yes that looked very much like the elven script on the one ring one knife to rule them all and in the darkness bind them oh boy (laughs) There was a bit in that opening where you either saw the shadow of a spectre or a spectre like creeping out along a wall and it reminded me of drink Harry Potter in Deathly Hallows Part 1 where Hermione is reading the tale, what's it, Brothers Grimm? Be- Beedle the Bard? Beedle the Bard, yeah. Brothers Grimm is our world. <laughs> there you go. And she's reading that and the animation's really pretty. That just like smirky, like spectery shadow thing reminded me a little bit of that as well. There was a lot of chat in our Discord about whose voice it was in the voiceover because the voices that we have had so far for voiceover has mostly been Kaiser, right? I don't know if we've heard anyone else just yet. Have we heard a woman's voice before? Have we heard Seraphina before? Seraphina. Yeah, maybe. maybe. But I feel like you can always identify who the voice is. So we were like, oh, it can't just be a random. Like, it has to be someone that's, like, important to the series. And apparently it was confirmed, because obviously I was on the Twitters afterwards and I saw lots of things. I don't know how to say it properly. Is it Zephania? The angel? Yes. Zephania? Is that how you pronounce it? Help? You know what? (laughs) We're going to find out when we meet her, so... I might just give the audiobooks a quick listen and work it out from that, because it's another classic where if I've only seen it on the page, I've just been making that shit up in my head as I read it. (laughs) I looked on the... Again, apologies to all you lovely listeners that have read and know his dark materials like the back of your hand and have great memories unlike us but i had to look on the his dark materials wikipedia and it said that apparently she's the leader of the rebel angels so there you go my next note was love the statue of the hand with the fingers missing and the uh, rage i feel like you have some things to say about that yes did anyone else feel like it was like a really familiar vibe because it is used a lot basically loads of iconography throughout the world but probably most recognizable to a western audience would be christian iconography there's a lot of depictions of christ in a position where his thumb and forefinger and middle finger are up maybe with the thumb slightly bent and his ring finger and pinky are down or like uh, bent at half mast and that it looks really similar to the statues around the eight tower of angels and this specifically the hand that it focused on for a while in that intro part And that is actually a symbol that's often used in Buddhism 
and can have many meanings and it's kind of a symbol that's used across stuff but some of the many meanings that I've gleaned from different things some areas are like it's a symbol of prayer some are saying it's representative of protection there's one where the meaning is knife which I'm really here for like knife and protection and basically if you want to go down an amazing rabbit hole just look at hand symbolism and iconography throughout classical portraiture and sculpture because it's amazing like it's very da vinci code (laughs) there's all sorts of like amazing like symbolism and different meanings based on the different positionings of people's hands but like that one specifically stood out to me and it's in quite a famous portrait of jesus of christ a a da vinci portrait in fact that sold for a lot of money quite recently amazing research corner you love it the next thing that i wanted to say is that People get inspected, it's fucking brutal, and it genuinely upset me. It's really interesting because it's it's completely different to the book. It's so different. Like, I thought it'd be very still. The spectres kind of, like, swarming around a human, and the human just basically being still. But it, like, looks like they're literally yanking something out of someone. Like, the bit where that guy's on the floor trying to get away... You know me, I love horror, I love gore, I love all that stuff, but like, it upset me a lot. I was like, fuck, that is fucking brutal. I think they've deliberately hammed it up to make the spectres scarier. They have gone hard to make it feel really visceral, and it really does. And I think perhaps it's something that wouldn't have read as scary as it looks. Um, so when you're reading the book, one of my favourite parts of the book, favourite parts, is not horrible, but like one of my favourite descriptions in the book is of how the spectres attack and when the guy's getting attacked by the spectres and he's ca- pretending it's not happening to him and he starts like counting bricks and he starts like doing all sorts of unusual things to try and like distract himself from what's happening to him and the idea of pretending like nothing's happening as a way to, an ineffective way of fending them off is petrifying and it really really works in the books because you can imagine doing it and you can you can really sit yourself in there and it's a little bit more passive whereas like I guess visually on the screen and again I think that's why because we had this conversation about how the spectres look so different to how they're described in the books and we saw a little tiny bit of how I would have imagined the spectres when Will's starting to see one like semi-materialize in front of him because he's growing up oh will um (laughs) oh will (laughs) and do you reckon as he saw it like three little chest hairs pinged out (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah you're a man now and he yeah so he like starts to see it materialize that like shimmery oily thing in the air where he's is quite transparent was kind of how i visualized them and that makes him again very scary conceptually but perhaps not as impactful on screen so i can see why they've gone with a very like floaty black mist that looks a little bit like a cloth when they're all flying around it is a bit dementory do you know what you just made me think of i don't know if you've ever seen it but you said it they're like a cloth there's like a meme and it's quite old and it's like a bed sheet and it's got caught in the wind and some it's like flirting around and somebody's put wuthering heights by kate bush on in the background it's <laughs> so like flirting in the air like very kate bush-esque i'll find it i'll send it you i'll post it on twitter if i remember everybody again if I haven't posted it on Twitter, and this episode goes up, tell me, because I'll post it. I will have forgot. <laughs> While we're on Spectres, I know there was, like, chat in our Discord about how, they're fl- how they can fly in this series. And I saw Jack Thorne on Twitter, who is great. I would recommend, after the episode airs, looking at Jack Thorne's Twitter feed, because he always answers everybody's questions, and he has some, like, obviously he has some great insight, but also some, like, little tidbits that we might not 
know about filming, uh, somebody said, why do the spectres fly? And he said that it will become apparent in episode seven. Interesting. Because yes, I remember a specific moment in the books, I think, where the spectres do begin to fly. And I, I feel like that's a very powerful moment. So I'm intrigued to see why they've negated that moment or why they've chosen to do a different moment for a different reason. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk now about Andrew Scott and Lima Miranda. Okay. Number one, I have a very astute observation. For anybody that has ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, I'm still trying to get Faye to watch it. She's not watched it yet. It's great. Andrew Scott slash Joppery has the exact same hair as Sokka. He's got like an adorable little wolf tail and it's really <laughs> lovely. <laughs> I'm sure it's like a, cause like most of the like cultural references in Avatar are like seated in, they're very much pull inspiration from various cultures in our world. So I'm sure it is like a, a thing that I have failed to research. But for me, I was just like, he just looks like soccer. <laughs> oh, my first impression of Jeopardy. He's a bit of a fuckboy. He just seems like a little bit of a fuckboy, right? Mm-hmm, 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 He's got that like really cocky vibe. He's hot and he knows it. He like thinks that he owns a room and he thinks that he knows better than everyone. I warmed to him when he was talking about Will at the end and when he was saying like, I know that I can't get to him anymore. I've tried years to do it and I just want him to be free and want him to be able to think freely and all that kind of stuff. I like warmed him, but all the bit with him and Lee, like it worked really well because they like had a had a little like argumentative banter going on, which was quite fun. But yeah, I was like, you fuck boy. You're like every guy I've ever met in a club that thinks that they know better than me. I think it's that classic thing of he clearly has like a facade. He clearly has a persona that he's built up for himself and it's only when you see a crack in that that you can start to warm to him because I was also like he's just coming off as cocky and I don't love to see it and I was a little bit surprised because I was fully ready to be obsessed with him but I'm also really here for that depiction of him having that arrogance and having that cockiness and a layer that you scrape beneath and you can see no he does care there is a lot of heart there but he just doesn't necessarily know how to like connect with people in the same way because he's clearly built up a lot of walls and he's had to to protect himself and then also probably for a myriad of other reasons definitely and he's been on his own for a long time as well with this like trauma of trying to get back to his family which he now knows he can't do which is really sad i'm with you like i appreciate the layers but like my first impression i was like oh my god you cocky shit in terms of drawing an Asriel Joppery comparison as well, it's really interesting. Is like they've both chosen to ditch their kids, basically. But Asriel, at any time, could have gone back relatively easily. Like he was staying away. There is an argument he's staying away to like protect Lyra because he's a political figure that is controversial and blah, blah, blah. But equally, he's clearly the kind of guy where if he actually genuinely wanted to, he would have made it work. And Joppery has or Grumman, or John Parry, or whatever we're going to call him right now. I think Joffrey, because that's what they'd be going for in the episode. He has clearly got way less of all the power and privilege than Asriel does, especially as a like completely random newcomer in that world, and has tried really hard to get back to his kids because he's left for a reason, and then regretted it and wanted to go back and couldn't. And so like he's got this similar facade and a similar vibe to Asriel in terms of they've both made really similar decisions in terms of like ditching their families in favor of their ambitious careers. But then they've also like emotionally gone in different ways. So initially I was like, oh God, is he going to be another Asriel? I can't hack this. And then he like cracked and he showed the emotion and I was more on board with him. Yeah, I feel like it just shows how, uh, again, how emotionally unavailable Asriel is. I personally feel a bit called out by Joffrey in this episode when he says to uh, Lee, 
when Lee says, I don't like Azrael, and Joffrey's like, like him? Who does? This is much, much bigger than that. Don't confuse a man with a mission. And I'm like, okay, don't need to call me out, Joffrey. I get it. I get it. <laughs> the poetic beauty of saying that to Lin-Manuel, who plays Hamilton. <laughs> just like, you've got to separate the man from the mission. Like, oh, the beauty. Just, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Chef's Love it. kiss. But yeah, we have like lovely moments of Lee talking about Lyra. I feel like Lee's dialogue has especially been really good this season and just been really to the point. I think a lot of the time in season one, points were skated around rather than just said. Whereas like Lee's very much like, I hate Azrael, I love Lyra. And I'm like, me too, mate, me too. He's talking openly about wanting a daughter, wanting kids. If he had a daughter, he'd want her to be like Lyra and like his love for her and he's really coming into his own and talking about that stuff openly now, which I really like. Mm -hmm. Also, one thing that I mentioned, because I was talking to Liam about it, I said to him, I was like, oh, in the book, the revelation that uh, Joffrey is Will's dad is is just that. It's a revelation you don't know until they meet. But it's interesting that they chose not to do that in the TV show, that you know that he's Will's dad from the beginning. I guess because it's so much more of a visual medium... If they were gonna have, they knew that they were gonna have Will like seeing pictures of his dad when he's doing his research, and that we would probably have to be there for that. And they knew that we would have to. It is a revelation in the book, but there are clues there. But when you make those clues more visual and you're physically seeing the person side by side, it's gonna be harder to keep it a secret. <laughs> true, very true, very true. Yeah, I'm here for the decision. It was just I hadn't really thought about it until last night when when it came to me when I was watching. I like that you can see and I know that we saw this in one of the posters that they did for season two but you can see Joffrey's trepanning scar I think that's such a nice touch he teaches us how to pronounce Asa Hetero which is fucking great for when we get to that chapter <laughs> so thank you thanks <laughs> thanks yeah, Joffrey we needed that <laughs> mm-hmm. the other thing sorry I just keep talking about Joffrey but after he kind of let down his fuckboy facade him talking about his demon when he was like, imagine my surprise to know that part of me is female and bird form. It's beautiful. And I was like, oh. Yeah. I felt a little bit cheated of maybe a little bit more of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like we had a nice little moment when she's about, like when she's going to guide them to him and she's like, oh, you'll see. And she makes a little tortoise and the hair quip and I'm really here for it. But I'm sure there's a very good reason why they didn't just immediately bombard us with it because they knew we'd all freak out over like hot priest having Fleabag as his demon. Maybe it's not that I feel robbed of it. I just, I want more. I'm excited for more. Yes, please. Thank you. (laughs) You know, they love to tease us and I think they were just teasing us. I think we'll get much more of her. Um, in the next few episodes. Lee and Hester on the boat going in is, was really cute. I love like Hester getting mad at Lee when he complains about being bit. She's just like, just fucking get on with it. Like, just get on with it, Lee. The little like heckling dynamic that they have because we saw last episode how great they are as a team. And we can, we've can we seen them being great as a team. We've seen them having like these really tender moments and then also seeing them have like a bicker is brilliant. It makes them so rounded as a, as a duo and as a single entity. And it's like, oof. Yeah, absolutely. His eyes cleared up pretty quickly. How long do you reckon he's been on that boat for? I don't know, but I wonder if that was the Lee scab kit that we saw Lynn tweet about. Maybe. Don't get my hopes up. <laughs> just say, I'm just saying. Don't just be saying. He was pretty up. scabby. <laughs> yeah, he did heal up pretty quick. Glad to see it. <laughs> he also seems to have a very ample supply of hair gel wherever <laughs> he is because I was thinking there was a moment when it was like Lee and Joppery opposite each other and it was like a battle of the hairdos it was like <laughs> Quiff versus Man Bun <laughs> and I was like <laughs> the hair department must have just been like 
<laughs> like freaking out over it. Yeah, in fairness, they both have fucking really great hair. How is it that nice when they're like traversing the forest? Well, th- this is my question about Lyra, because Lyra has really good hair. Lyra has like hair that has been obviously curled. And she's got this like ombre look going on. And I'm like, how has everyone got such good hair when most people are like traversing around wherever they're traversing? Yeah, Lyra definitely doesn't know how to look after her own hair because she didn't even know how to, well, in the book, she didn't even know how to wash it properly. So she definitely doesn't know how to put it up in like a little twizzly bobble thing. But I do think that maybe Will is good at doing hair because if he's been looking after his mum for a long time, he's perhaps learned a lot of the like tips and tricks for sorting out hair. Are you telling me that you think Will is sitting down every morning and curling Lyra's hair? Yes, I think that's why they've bonded so well. We've seen, we've seen in this episode particularly how well they've bonded, and it's definitely because Will is doing Lyra's hair. Okay, cool. That's how else is her hair so great? We've canonized it. That is canon. While we're there, shall we talk about Lyra and Will and everything that's going on there? Yes. Oh, it's actually this episode is a really, really great episode. One of the reasons being Lyra and Will's progression in their relationship. Their sweet little glances at each other, their little smiles at each other. They just want to do the best for each other and it's just really fucking sweet. I'd say this is a stellar episode for Daphne. Daphne's done some cracking face acting in this episode. Quite often, Lyra gets a lot of like short, sassy quips and comments or like very straightforward comments and she's kind of doing her thing and you don't really necessarily get a lot from her but she's been doing so much emoting in this episode (laughs) and yeah I'm really really here for it and showing like yeah so many facets of Lyra like she's been angry she's been bullshit she's been bossy she's been tender she's been scared and worried and anxious and she's had all of the things and it's just been great. One thing that that I will say is that and I feel the same when I read this chapter in the book just knowing that Lyra doesn't have the alethiometer really stresses me out I remember like getting to that point in the book and we're just about to get to it in our read through. And I'm like, I hate the stress. Like I hate the stress of knowing that she doesn't have it and knowing that they have to get it back somehow. And I'm like, no, I just wanted to have it. Is it the same stress that you feel when you're already halfway into work and you realise you've forgotten your phone? Yeah, a little bit. Is it akin to that level of stress where you're like, uh, or like you're going somewhere and your phone's on like 2% battery and you don't quite know where you're going. (laughs) So you have to try and like memorize the route on Google Maps, but you're me and you have a shit sense of direction. And so there's like this like rising level of panic inside of you as you're like, your battery sinks and your panic rises. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I will say, when like Lyra and Will are like wandering around in Chittagatse looking for how to get into the tower, Lyra kicks down the door and I fucking love that. It's such a Buffy move. Like whenever I see anyone kicking down a door, I always think about Buffy the Vampire. I think it was also very unnecessary because she kicked down the door. (laughs) You could see that the door was only held on by a little latch. And then when the door swung open, you could see the little hoop handle that if you'd have just given that a twist, it might have opened the latch. That's not as dramatic, is it? (laughs) Yeah. Don't deny me a door kick down. I'd love to see that shit. But I just love that they didn't even try the door. They didn't even try and give it a jiggle. She just immediately went for the kick. (laughs) Love it. Love Pan being handy as well when he was like sticking his little head down to the grate to look in and then like flitted about like a moth to kind of see what he could see when they were looking for the door. I love Pan being useful and changing shape to be useful. It's very cute. Yeah, and Lyra and Will, this episode, I feel like I felt closer to the their versions from the book. And I, we've spoken before about 
how we uh, really like Daphne and Amir's interpretation of Will and Lyra, but it is different from the books. That doesn't mean it's any better or any worse, but it's different. But I feel like in this episode, they got closer to the Will and Lyra from the books. And the one bit that stood out for me is when they're trying to figure out who should go up the stairs in the tower first. And Lyra's like, I should go first because it's my fault that we're here. And like Will says something like, no, I should go first because... And I can't remember the reason that he gives now. No, he's like, you, yeah, it's your fault. And that's why you have to listen to me and I'm in charge. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's like so much of that dynamic between them in the book. Uh, yeah, so I felt like that kind of brought us closer to, to them, their book form. Love the tower interior. Obsessed with the tessellating Celtic knot slash geometric design all over the tower and all inside the tower. Love it. Giacomo Paradisi, is he not the most well put together hostage you have ever seen? (laughs) He's still in his like waistcoat and his jacket and his fancy leather gloves. And he's like barely tied up. He's been looking after himself, you know? (laughs) Terrence Stamp, what a great guy. He does a really good job. And also, did you know he did the voice of Asriel in the radio adaptation of his star materials? I did not know, but that is an excellent merging of not even merging of worlds it's all the same world great love it <laughs> merging of adaptations Ooh, shall we uh should we talk about this fight uh yes oh my god this like entire thing maybe lasts like two minutes if that but it's so fucking good i love how fast slow it is yeah, yeah. i know that they're opposites words and that doesn't <laughs> make sense but like it's grapply it's struggly but it's all very slow like they're staying in one position and struggling for a bit and then they're moving and then it takes me back to when we were learning how to wrestle (laughs) like thinking about how you would like we did like pro wrestling training for a brief period of time a couple of years ago and it really made me think about the way that all like when you do a grip and like showing that grip and making sure that you like show the struggle and all that kind of stuff and you can kind of see the choreography of the fight and how they've like grappled it all together and some of it's like really lovely bits of chain wrestling almost and then some of it's like there's like a level of intensity there from the fact that it's not just a really fast scrap with lots of running around and lots of punches like there's barely a punch thrown until will like full-on goes for it i think a lot of that comes from the fact that tulia has the knife and will is trying to avoid it so it's like very hard to like have a big fist fight when you're actively trying to avoid a knife that's been like held into your face when he kicks Pan. When I watched that the first time, I shouted out loud. I did. I literally was like, <gasps> I felt like somebody had kicked me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe it. Oh God. I'm sorry. I'm just picturing like Red Panda's little face when he got kicked and he just went backwards like that. And I was like, no, no. Love it. Love that decision. I'm pretty sure it's not in the books. Is it anything they do that is that level of like drama and you'd remember it because it's so visceral that they bring in that's not in the books it's like it is a surprise it is a shock because so many people that have read the books a million times they knew that somebody was gonna grab pan back in bolvanger because like we read about it years ago but like anything that's new like this that punches you in the gut or kicks pan in the stomach it legitimately does shock you and i yes please keep us on the edge of our seats even though we've read the books a million times like i love it i would like to add that particular bit of the fight so we have Pan being kicked in the stomach. Less than 10 seconds later, Will's fingers get sliced off. That bit of that fight can go into my Hall of Fame for best scenes. So in there, we have, from season two, we have Coulter and Lee so far. And now this bit of the fight can go into the Hall of Fame because it is so 
fucking good. You're literally like gut punched from Pan being kicked and then you have no time to recover and fucking Will's fingers are flying through the air. That's the reason it all happens so like fast, right? It's so agonising and slow and fast because I missed on the first watch through Will even using the rope that they've untied Giacomo with to wrap around his hand because he knows he's going to get into a fight with a knife. Like, that's so savvy. So savvy from the FX department and the people trying to keep it all PG whatever for eight o'clock on a Sunday night because you're literally covering the the wound site so you don't have to show anything. But just so clever of Will because like, yeah, get a thick rope to kind of protect your hand and be able to get close to the knife. But I didn't even see him pick it up. So it's all happening so fast. And then suddenly the rope is soaked in blood and you're like, what has happened? This is so easy to miss. So good. Remember last week when I was like, I can't wait to see Will get his fingers chopped off. We saw it and it was great. (laughs) There is one moment that I missed. It's one of my favourite moments from the book and it is where Giacomo Paradisi, who's I think in the books portrayed as much more like elderly and like less put together, gets out from his drawer. He's like, I have a very special medicine. And he gets out like a shitty bottle of Savlon. No. And puts it on Will's fingers and Will's like, it's... Savon, it was like Savon or germaline or something like that. It might even be super. Oh my god, I remember you just like triggered something in yeah. my memory. And yeah, puts yeah, it yeah. on and Will's like, oh that thanks. He's, you've literally chopped your fingers off and this man is like very sparingly using this very precious Savlon on you. <laughs> thanks. Uh we'll get to it in the books. But I kind of miss that moment, but equally it's like it's a comedy moment that wasn't appropriate for it. <laughs> On the on the subject of Will's fingers, nobody is like trying to help him. Like, surely he's losing like a lot of blood and is in a substantial amount of pain. Like, I know his pain is mentioned in the in the episode, but I'm like, this child is profusely bleeding, and putting a couple of bandages over it isn't going to stop it. Surely he would have bled out pretty soon. How? How is this happening? How is he just carrying on as normal as he can? How is that a thing? You'd have passed out. I know he passes out and wakes up, but you would have stayed passed out. I assume between him passing out and him waking up in a bed, they've cleaned and dressed it at the very least because it does change from being inside a muddy rope to in some kind of dressing, despite the fact that he's already bleeding through it. Yeah, I was like, you'd still be bleeding pretty heavily. No, but that's the point. Like in the books, it, it would stop it to a point and it would obviously take a long time to stop bleeding and they should have really like, stitched over like whatever skin was left i maybe they did that maybe that's part of it like he's not just got too like open surely they've done something but in the books it's a very big point is that it is almost impossible to heal and that like even the witches struggle to heal it and struggle to help heal it because it is a magical cut there is something ethereal and mystical about that injury lyra's moment when will is trying to learn to cut with the knife okay if i was lyra in the situation and i could read the lithiometer and i knew i was special just like how lyra knows how special she is i'd be like give it to me i'll try it <laughs> like i'd definitely be like why can't you get it to work give it to me can i try i want to find out how hard it is so that i can understand why you're finding it difficult um, and like she doesn't do that she just kind of says to him like look I think that I have a similarity. There was one time when I was trying to use the alethiometer and I was so scared I couldn't. And I just had to accept the fear. And that's what you have to do. You have to accept the pain as a part of you and then focus. I just, I love that as a thing of like not fighting against your feelings. It's fucking hard being in pain. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people out there in the world living with like chronic pain every day. And there is obviously something to be said for, no, you can't just accept it and get on with your life because it's fucking 
hard. But also there's a thing of in order for Will to achieve this one thing he needs to do, he needs to just kind of like allow it to become a part of him and learn to function while also having this pain. And it's just, it gets me, it hits me where it hurts. And it can apply to so many things. Like almost everybody you ask could probably pinpoint a moment where they were feeling something that was really overwhelming that they couldn't get through. And they reached a point where they like integrated that feeling into themselves in order to be able to focus on what they needed to do next. We've all been there at some point in our lives and it's just, Lyra. Stop making me feel the feels. <laughs> yeah, that fucking scene of of Will cutting his first window is so fucking satisfying. It's pretty much like exactly how I imagined it. And the other time that I made a noise in this episode was when he pushes the knife. So like he makes a tiny little slit, doesn't he? And then he like pushes it through and it makes a noise and it like jolts through a little bit. And I made like the most satisfied noise. I was like, oh, because it just looked and felt so good when he did that. They did it so well, so well. Is it a point in the book that is made? Because I feel like Will tries a few times and one time he hits a point and there's so much resistance that he feels if he pushed through, it would break. And he gets told, if you break the knife, like if you do push through or you try too hard to push or you get distracted halfway through a cut, it will break the knife and it can never be put back together. But he didn't get told that. Will he find that out from someone else? Because Giacomo is, I think, the person that tells him that, right? Or maybe it's not. Maybe. Oh, you had a question in the Discord about uh, the sound that it made. Oh, it wasn't even so much the sound as much as the, like, just everything together. I really want to know. Russell, whoever it is on the VFX team, tell me. I've made a note to ask you if we ever get to speak to you again. VFX team, did you work out how to make the cut by stretching loads of different fabrics over stretching boards and like cutting them with really sharp scalpels because the way that it like perfectly slices and like the knife sinks into it and it frays and the way that it like frays apart and the way you've used the threads it just for somebody that has worked with fabrics on numerous occasions and like cutting through a tautly stretched fabric with a knife is very satisfying it was done very satisfyingly and I applaud it and I just want to know how they went about the R&D for like working out how they wanted that to look and whether like maybe that someone from the costume department was like, oh, have you tried this? Or like, I feel like there's some kind of melding where somebody knows somebody that works with lots of like lovely fabrics that was like, oh, try this. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And then it's like a Ziploc bag on the way back up. <laughs> yes, 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 it is. Are we going to talk about Lyra walking up the stairs backwards oh. to give Will his towels and how it's like a perfect little mirror of when Coulter made the monkey and Pan look away when Lyra's in the bath or when like Roger and Lyra were like sat opposite sides of the wall when they were having baths at Adriel's house. And it's just, why do emotional moments keep happening in the bath? It's just like a little homage to Roger, isn't it? Is Lyra being like, this is what Roger did for me and he was my best friend and I want to be Will's best friend and this is what I'm going to do for him. And Pan walking backwards too. So cute. So cute. Lyra apologising to Will when he's in the bath. Some more amazing face acting from Daphne Keane. The vibe that I got from that apology was, I am sorry about your fingers. Rather, I am sorry about losing the alethiometer and all that kind of shit. Which made me feel like I really want Will or somebody to say that to Lyra about Roger. Because it just really felt really heartfelt for her to be like, Will, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry that this thing has happened to you. And I just want somebody to do that for Lyra. She kind of had it from Mary. 
Yeah, I was thinking more like somebody her age, like more like a friend. Like not that Mary isn't a friend, but I want. I, I what I'm saying is I want Will. I want it from Will. <laughs> I want Will to <laughs> do that. <laughs> I think he'll get there. He's been again. He's been seeing it from Lyra. He's been seeing the more that this emotion. You know, when she kind of told him about it in the cinema, telling somebody that you've recently met about a big loss that you've experienced in your life, especially if it's recent, can feel a lot like coming out sometimes. Because it it feels like you're dropping a bomb on a conversation. And it's something that I personally have experienced a lot of times. It's a really difficult conversation to have. And I feel like somebody's initial reaction to that is not ever going to be their true reaction to that. Because you're dropping such a huge bomb. And like I think Will is still processing that. And every time we see Will and Lyra having these little interactions and these shared emotions, I think he's he's going to reach a point where he's going to come up to her and be like, I'm really sorry that when you told me that we got shushed in the cinema and I couldn't react to you properly. Like, I really wanted to just tell you that I'm really sorry about your friend. And like, that they've got to have that genuine moment because how can their relationship develop without that like mutual thing? And I think also the way that Lyra is apologizing to Will isn't just, I'm sorry that your fingers got cut off. It's, I'm sorry that suddenly this huge burden has been placed on you and that you're some kind of prophetic character now and you've literally got the weight of multiple worlds on your shoulders all of a sudden when you already had enough on your plate and I feel like that's a really big thing and like they're both just doing a lot of big emotions (laughs) no they are yeah absolutely and because Lyra knows how that feels she knows how it feels to be like maybe she doesn't understand it all yet she doesn't know that her destiny will change the fate of the world but she knows that she's she's important in this whole thing and now Will has to like have that as well, and she knows how it feels. So, oh, when they uh, good night, Will Parry, bearer of the knife. Good night, Lyra oh. Silvertongue. They're both so special. I know. <laughs> Everyone's I know. special. <laughs> Everyone is special. That's what they've been trying to teach us. <laughs> One other thing that I saw. So the actor that plays Tulia uh, is called Lewis McDougall. And obviously we see him get inspected, which is also a sad scene. We see him like running through the running through Chittagatse trying to find Angelica. According to Jack Thorne again on Twitter, he was supposed to have quite a big role in the Azrael episode that got cut because of COVID. So we were originally supposed to see much more of him, but sadly now we weren't. I really hope they make that as like a bonus in between seasons episode that they can bring out between two and three when they're able to film it and edit it and get it sorted to be honest i don't think we will all the stuff i've seen from like jane tranter and jack they've just said this it's, it's kind of lost to the ether now oh. yeah release the scripts do you think that we will see Azrael at all in this season i don't know i don't think so what's james gonna do to earn that paycheck eh i know i know <laughs> no <God>. chance <laughs> Shall we talk about Mary? Yeah. Is there something about Mary There's that we need to talk about? about Mary. Always. <laughs> First of all, I just want to say ooh to Boreal looking at the cave. Get the fuck out of there. We don't want you there at all. And also, Oliver, stop just fucking spilling the beans. You're just telling him everything. Stop it. I loved, oh, I can't remember who made the comment in the Discord. It was like, Oliver did not get the note that he's acting in a fantasy drama. Because <laughs> he's so mundane and it's so perfect. <laughs> No thank you to Boreal making a weird gendered comment at Mary about like, I love it when a woman has a work ethic. I've always admired women with a good work ethic. I fucking love that it immediately puts Mary on the back foot and she's like, oh, you, I hate you. I hate you already and I've only just met you and you can see it in her eyes and it's like, yes. Mary's reaction to him saying that to her, I want it as my screensaver, as my fern background because she's just like, 
you can't nobody can see the faces that Rachel and I are doing. <laughs> We're both doing the face. <laughs> We're doing our best Simone Kirby as Mary Malone impression. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Just initially, who looks that good after having woken up from falling asleep on their arm on their desk? Like she does a great job of like wiping her face and pretending like she's all drooly and sleepy, but like she looks great. <laughs> the moment that uh, defense funding is mentioned and she's immediately like, Ugh. What is defence funding? Uh, Like Ministry of Defence funding, like military Uh, funding, I I think. She's basically just not here for like working with shitty government military services. Like we do not want any of your massive budgets with no restrictions because you know what that means? It means we're going to be made to work for evil and we don't want to be evil. No, thank you. Yeah, I mean, oh, just love her. Love how she just fucking kicks Boreal out. Amazing. If we're on Mary, we should talk about her last scene as well, where she talks to dust speaks to dust which is interesting because a lot of people in the discord were because obviously there was dust it says it's angels i was like what i don't remember this so i was just like watching everyone talking about it and apparently it's like almost word for word from the book right i think it might be i am now opening up the book to kind of double check and also is it the same voice as the voiceover at the beginning i think it is i think it's the same voice but through a computer filter like auto-tune vibes <laughs> did you open it up on the right page again almost but it's conveniently easy to spot because it's like separated and it's in a different font and it's very satisfying to read sassy computer is sassy in the book too except for this is not spoken but printed on screen but i can understand why in the tv show they chose to make it spoken because it just makes it a bit more accessible for like everyone that's watching it and doesn't want to like or can't like read subtitles super quick yeah and also the voice is just really great it's very creepily powerful i really liked the sound of the voice and like the way it says vengeance at the end that was quite a shocking moment her conversation is a lot longer and more detailed but the initial conversation of like are you shadows yes are you the same as lara's dust yes and that's dark matter yes dark matter is conscious evidently oh it's like so as she goes on to ask more about like human evolution and stuff and it's like correct but you need to ask more questions but when she asks us there's more than one of you uncountable billions but who are you angels angels are creatures of shadow matter of dust structures complexifications yes and shadow matter is what we've called spirit from what we are spirit from what we do matter matter and spirit are one so it's literally verbatim from the book and yes, vengeance. Ugh. So I think it just finishes on vengeance, but in the book we get there, find the girl and the boy, waste no more time, you must play the serpent, and then more instructions. And I wonder if we'll get some of that next episode, if she's going to communicate with it further. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it would have been too long of a scene, right, to put it in. It's kind of what we're saying with Lyra and the conversation with uh, the policeman last episode, when I was saying like, oh, I feel like she gave in too quickly or got tripped up too quickly. It's like, it's a pacing thing, isn't it? You can't, like, in a book, it's easier to do that. You can't have just Mary sat at a computer. Especially if you want the shocking moment of vengeance to be the bit where you're like, oh, shit. It would be a bit much if there was, like, shitloads of things in between that. It also, and I feel like this will be me until we get there in the books, but the whole thing with, like, angels and dust and, and how they connect confuses the fuck out of me. I, I just can't remember. <laughs> I think as, yeah, as we get into it, the more nitty gritty chapter by chapter, we'll pick it apart. This will be the first time I've probably understood it more fully as reading the books, because usually you're skimming through, you're here for the plot, you're here for the adventure, like everything else weaves together and makes it richer, but I am not great at paying attention to that. 
I would like to point out that I bloody loved the look on Mary's face when it said it was angels. And you could just see her being like, is that like maths meme gif? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the calculations happening, but then also at the same time, like a, I quit being a nun <laughs> to get away from this. Fuck this. I literally quit being a nun and that's all about angels. Why are the angels talking to me now? <laughs> I would be so pissed if I was <laughs> Can we have a conversation about Boreal and Coulter? Mm, yes, we can. Oh my God, briefly. I need to skip back to the fact that Pan touched Will. <gasps> Pan touched Will and it broke me. That entire interaction when Will's like, did I do something wrong? And Lyra was like, no, because she's surprised that Pan did it because like a part of her obviously knew that they wanted that to happen, but like she didn't realise and she didn't acknowledge. And then the shock and confusion on their faces, it was perfect. Pan like, oh, kind of being like a little obviously it's there for a moment of like really tender like comfort and friendship and com- all of this kind of stuff but also a little flirt <laughs> oh yeah a little flirt and i felt that was relevant to mention just before we get into talking about boreal and coulter because goddamn, does that snake get close to mrs coulter oh my god it does yeah it really does and that monkey is not happy about it and so i just wanted to have a conversation about people's demons interactions in this context because like creepy boreal be creepy did you read so I was in two minds about this so when the snake nearly touches Coulter and well he's touching her hand and she clearly does not want him to touch her and the bit where he first walks round her when she sat down and he like touches her shoulders and again Ruth Wilson with her fucking amazing acting face and just her amazing face it's just like every woman has been through that where like a man is like too touchy feely with you and he touches you wherever he touches you you don't want him his fucking hands on you and you ju- you're just like <sighs> Ugh, been there. We've all been there. But what I was going to say is, did you read the demon, the monkey prick? Did you read it as her holding him back because he's angry? Or did you uh, read it as another way that she's hurting the monkey? Because we've seen her grab him like that before and hurt him. And I couldn't tell which side I fell down on because the attention from Boreal might have triggered Coulter's self-hatred. But... It also might have just been really angry. Oh, I saw it more of like a, as a, like a um, joint acknowledgement of anger and disgust. She's kind of, you know, like if you're sat next to somebody and somebody's being horrendous, like down from you on the train carriage and you kind of like touch your friend's knee, like, or like you're like with your partner and you're like holding hands and you like squeeze their hand tighter because they're like also witnessing this thing and you can tell that you're angry. There's like a shared moment of like, we are unsafe to do something about this, but we are being subjected to this or we are... Un- There's something like in terms of like a, a, a squeeze of camaraderie and shared rage about a situation that that's kind of how it felt to me. Like the monkey was like, and Colter was like, kind of gave it a squeeze on the shoulder almost in terms of being like, hold back, don't do anything, but I agree with you vibe rather than like a... I want to hurt the monkey or I'm holding him back because I can't control him or any of those kinds of things. It was more like a yeah. yes. I'm not sure what side I fall down on because we have seen Coulter grab the monkey like that before as a way of hurting the monkey and herself. That's so true. I agree. I think it could it could be read in different ways and that would be interesting to ask. Whoever we can ask about that, like what the meaning was. And I'm not like precious to one way. Like when I was watching it, I literally thought, ooh, you can actually read this two ways rather than like falling down on one side of it. The other part of that scene is we have Coulter back in blue. Yes, we do. Blue is her 
I'm aligned with what I think Lyra's best interests are, colour, I think. (laughs) Because when she was in red and black, when she was in black, she was doing a lot of sneaky political things. When she was in red, she was doing a lot of power move political things than like sneaky political things. So I feel like black is her stealth colour and her like funeral colour. And then red is her like power move colour. I'm doing what's best for me and we're looking out for number one. And then blue is her like... I love Lyra colour. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because before it was her, like, I want to be enticing to Lyra. Like, and that's what we had a conversation with Caroline McCall about and about how all those colours were reflective of, like, being appealing to Lyra and representing the North. But I think in season two, she's not trying to appeal to Lyra. She's trying to find Lyra. And I think it's more about reliving the herself that she was when she was aligned with Lyra in that way. And that she's trying to, like do that again and I love it and also that it's like a perfect tone of blue that's really similar to the blue that's in Boreal's house and that she's just like all blue and then like bright red lips and amazing like does she have red nails but there's like blue and then there's red somewhere else like on the table like oh a bright red candle in front of her she's got red lips and there's like a bright red candle on the table and it's just like a perfect little combination of like here is the blue that she's presenting but there's still the red really present of like, she's still looking for power. Ugh. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we love colours and costumes. It's great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do, we do. The one thing that we haven't spoken about yet is uh, Serafina and Ruta. Nice to see that they're like on the same side now and getting along better. But also it's kind of like, well, both of their homelands have just been destroyed. I kind of wish that they were aligned anyway and they didn't need this horrific tragedy to align them. But... I'm, like, happy that they're getting there now. We got some good lines, like, the Magisterium are weak, pathetic. Yes, love to see it, Serafina. Also, there was a light, I don't know if you noticed, when Serafina and Ruta are having a conversation and there's a close-up on Serafina's face. There's, like, a light reflected in, in Serafina's eyes. And I don't know if it's intentional, but it it makes it made her look even more magical. It was, like, two, like, where her pupils were, it was, like, two white strips it could have just been a reflection of the lighting on the show but it looked really clear and i was like i wonder whether that was intentional because it did make her look even more like powerful and witchy i feel like surely because if it wasn't intentional they'd have removed it in post yeah it's true no i loved it i feel like their dynamic has flipped as well because we've gone from seraphina being very like be more cautious we're not sure what to do and ruta being like no i'm gonna absolutely get out there and fight this fight and be aggressive about it and we can't hold back to now ruta is like i am so filled with regret my actions have been a major cause in i think she's blaming herself because it was a retaliatory action against ruta killing the cardinal that cause all the hope like it's not her fault it's 100% the magisterium's fault but she's feeling guilt for it and seeing that in her because we've seen her be so strong and so powerful and seeing her like really really sad and full of regret is so intense especially and then flipping it and seeing Serafina filled with rage it was like a beautiful flipping dynamic and like it was like they were like one way and then you flip it and then now they're together good yeah they've <laughs> yeah. like evened each other out <laughs> It was a good scene between them, and they, yeah, they both just nailed it. Obviously, we get the the final shots of Serafina kicking some magisterial ass, which is amazing because we liked that Ruta got to do it a couple of episodes before when Mrs. Coulter's torturing the witch. We've now got to see Serafina do a very similar thing to what Ruta did in that episode, and it just looked so Kick good. Some ass, yes, and it <laughs> looked so fucking good. The very last shot 
where you can see them, the witches flying into the massive tear that Asriel made. It's so beautiful. A thought popped into my head as you were so beautifully telling that of the image of the witches flying when they're like kind of halfway in midair and they're not like full on like straight as an arrow flying and they're kind of drifting. It's very silky. It's very wafty. It looks very similar to perhaps how the spectres looked when they were flying. I'm really sorry if this is going to turn out to be a spoiler because it's wild speculation. I feel like perhaps the reason the spectres fly is because the witches are going to see them flying from afar, think it's another group of witches, approach them and then get attacked. Oh my God. I'm calling it now. I'm calling it that that might be the reveal of how the witches meet the spectres because there's very similar visual representations of like from afar how the witches look when they're flying and how the spectres look when they're like floating around. Interesting. Yeah, I'd not thought of that. Ooh. If it doesn't happen, then you're welcome. I just wrote you a scene for book three. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to, to talk about? Oh, uh, actually, sorry, I know I just asked you the question and then jump right in. No, 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 do it. Fucking Jopri and Lee in the balloon and you told a really funny joke in the Discord which really made me laugh, so I'd like you to tell it again, please. <laughs> Lynn is like, let's get in a balloon, it's great, but the weather's not great, there's not much wind, it's very still. And Jopri says something like, leave the wind to me. And I was like, well, that's just me. After any large meal or copious <laughs> amounts of fizzy beverages, thank you very much, leave the wind to me. And then, literally, seconds later, the wind starts and it cuts to Joppery and he's there. <laughs> just for the moment you've made a fart joke beforehand and then watching that scene. Uh, it cracks me up. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I uh, I did laugh quite hard at uh, Joppery's like facial expressions and like his arms, like when he was controlling the wind. <laughs> I don't know if you'd have found it as funny if we hadn't pre-established a fart dynamic, but brilliant! <laughs> this is the level of base humor that we're going to, and I am a hundred percent fine with it. I am also really here for the look on Lynn's face and the excitement, the childlike excitement of somebody having created wind for him not in that way (laughs) i'm just saying the love affair that could be joppery and lee is a beautiful dynamic like excuse me the aeronaut and the shaman that controls the weather getting together and like you could do like around the world in 80 days think of the adventures think (laughs) yeah but also i think that might be too hot for me to take if they got together so for my health probably might be better for them to uh (laughs) to not go there Am I going to a horny jail this week instead of you? I think you might be. <laughs> I might save it for next week, actually, because we've only just seen this. I'm just saying. They couldn't get a sexual tension award this week because they've not done enough, but I suspect that next week uh, Lee's going to be really hot for the fact that he can, like, that Joppery can control the weather. <laughs> so, you know, just saying. <laughs> yes. Amazing. <laughs> I will say that I think overall this episode was had a lot of very beautiful moments in it and a lot of moments that, like, made me quite emotional in the terms of like a lot of pivotal things happened will got the knife and when so when uh mr paradisi says will you are the bearer of this little knife which is really beautiful and i just feel like there was a lot of pivotal beautiful moments in this episode that made me emotional and i think for a lot of like his dark materials fans that people have been waiting for a lot of them and it's kind of like in the first season where like lyra starts to read the alethiometer properly and like gets called silver tongue for the first time yeah yeah exactly like just uh, it's just beautiful (laughs) it's just beautiful yeah it's seeing the monumental moments that make the books 
finally on screen in an adaptation that we love. <laughs> Thank you, people that made this happen. And this is the thing, like, there's always going to be bits that you can pick out of any adaptation that you're like, oh, that's not quite how I imagined it in the books. That's not quite how I imagined it. But, like, the way that this entire se- se- like series so far has fitted together with itself has made me really happy. And we've only got three episodes left. Oh, God. Wowzers. <laughs> I have no idea what the next episode is called. I haven't looked into it at all. Did it say it on IMDb? Sure does. The next episode is called The Scholar. I wonder if we're going to get a lot of time with Mary. Do you want me to read you the synopsis? Ooh, okay. Because there's a synopsis up. It's a, it's a one-sentence one, one, so it's not exactly going to be, like, revelatory. Will and Lyra set out to retrieve what's been lost. Mary takes a leap of faith. Oh, okay, okay. So I think, yeah, we'll we'll potentially have a small heist and a lot of Mary. And thanks, I'm here for that. Cheers, good. <laughs> I will good, take good. it. <laughs> I will take it. As we wrap up at the end of the show, I thought I might take a gratuitous moment to point folks towards my online shop i've spent the past few weeks working really hard on making a bunch of stuff and kind of prepping for the holidays and everyone's trying to shop a bit more independent this year so why not shop from me your friendly podcast host who is a struggling artist um (laughs) i've just recently updated loads of stuff there's a brand new crop of acorns and while the festive ones sold out in the recent update i've still got loads of like of my regular little cute acorns and loads of dice guardians for any D enthusiasts out there so hop along to my shop and see if you enjoy some cute stuff and also you will find the hdm pod merch section in my shop as well so if you do order from me you can order hdm pod merch at the same time and it'll arrive in the same parcel because I pack it all myself and I've been making a lot of parcels recently. <laughs> Buy Rachel's stuff because it is amazing and I have an entire shelf dedicated to just Rachel in my flat. <laughs> <laughs> like a shrine. But yeah, shop small. Buy Rachel's stuff. It's amazing. If you are looking after the pennies and the pounds and you want to support us and the podcast in a- another way, you can enter our merch prize draw giveaway that we are doing by leaving us a positive review five stars please and nice words and screenshotting that and sending your screenshot to her.materialspod at gmail.com that email will count as an entry into a prize draw when we get 50 positive review emails we will pull 10 names out of a hat and you will get some merch, some HDM pod merch from us in the post. So that's a really good way of supporting the podcast without having to spend any cash. Woohoo! Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can email us at her.materialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rach. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lee and Joffrey, you can find me hanging out on Twitter and Instagram at Faye Lee, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E-Triple-Y. 
and if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on medium at fay.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making cute and arty magical things. You can find me over on my Instagram at rachemakes, on Twitter at rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, rachemakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. And we'll see you soon. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well.